Hi there, this is Greg Legro. And this is Jamie Dew. Of Fully and Completely. Autumn. You're listening to... Welcome to Fully and Completely, a irregular podcast where we go through the chronological history of the tragically hip album to album talking about, but I can't do the Greg thing. I'm not the, I'm not the Greg thing doer. It's me, Jamie. I am Gregless at the moment as I record this introduction to another volume of hipsteries. This week we have a really interesting and enlightening guest as we always do. But this week, um, Maybe somebody who's a little bit more inside. Let me read you a quote from the Michael Barkley book. Jake Gold is a character. Hero, villain, hustler, angel, bully, business mastermind. Forget about the hip, one musician told me. Write about Jake. That's who your story should be about. That's from The NeverEnding Present by Michael Barkley. So if you haven't uh, put it together... <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with you, but um, this episode, we're sitting down with Jake Gold. We got some time with him earlier this week, and uh, we were delighted to just listen to him talk. I mean, this is somebody who was with the band for 18 years, um, helped bring them to the mainstream, you know, when they were signed in 1986, and was with them right through to 2002. So that's a hell of a run um, for, for anybody in the music business. But, uh, you know, with our, with our favorites, the Tragically Hip, that is a, a massive amount of time spent with this band. So um, I, can, I can tell you from a business mastermind perspective, Jake sat down as we were setting up our gear. He had ideas for the podcast. He's just an out-of-the-box thinker. And, um, again, a real delight to sit with. So why don't we go to that right now? This is Jake Gold on Hipsteries. Down, you're the top. 
live to die too easy Why stick around? I want my life to please me Not another small town home Came to Toronto as a as a very young person. By default, you are Canadian at this point. You've been here most of my life. Yeah, my my father my father was Canadian, and he moved us from uh, from New York um, when I was two years old. Um, but I was born in New Jersey. Mm. Moved to Manhattan when I was six months old, where my mom was from. My brother was born there, and then we all moved here in 1960. Mm. Um, yeah, so that that that's. But I I have lived. Uh, I lived in L.A. from 79 to 81, and I lived in New York from 98 till 2002. What was L.A. like in the late 70s, early 80s? What was what was that scene like? So were you pursuing music at that point? Well, I was and, I was and- actually working as a technical director at the Variety Arts Center. And to make money, I was selling office supplies over the phone. So there's an argument that says I got my phone chops from doing that because <laughs> I would work from 6 a.m. to 11 a.m. every day. And convincing people to buy toner and developer for their photocopiers. <laughs> and there was a great uh, sales manager there who literally taught me how to sell over the phone. And, and you could be anybody you wanted over the phone. Mm-hmm. There was no internet. You can look anything up. Like right. you could be anybody you wanted. And if, if, so you never used your real name. Oh, wow. So if, if anything went down or, customers complained or whatever about you, whatever. They just say, yeah, we fired that guy. And then they'd call back to the boiler room where we were all sitting and say, you know, so-and-so got fired, change your name. You know, (laughs) (laughs) So you change your name. (laughs) So I was Dave Mason, Dave Miller, you know, easy names that sounded familiar to people. You know, you always had to use names that sort of sounded familiar. You didn't want to use, Names that were too hard for them to uh, pronounce. Sure. 
So I did that, and then I moved back here in uh, 81, back to Toronto. And at, th- at that point, did you start pursuing? Uh, like I didn't pursue anything. Really? No. No, I was, uh, I came back, uh, a buddy of mine had a band, and they wanted me to be their lighting guy tour manager, because I had experience doing lighting, and, um, but by today's standards, I had zero experience doing lighting, but I knew how to flick switches, and I could figure it out, how to make it look good with the music, mm-hmm. and, because I'd been on the road with some bands, and things like that, and, um, uh, the band broke up a month after their new record came out. They actually had a record deal and everything. And um, and the guitar player quit the band, and then they got a new guitar player. And my friend, who was the drummer, is a guy I grew up with, grew up with named Coleman York. He uh, he came up to me. He said, "We want you to be our manager." And I said, "I don't know anything about it." He went, "Don't worry, you'll be good." <laughs> And that was in, uh, you know, middle of 1981. And I was working at a stereo store selling stereos. And uh, I called in sick one day to take a gig uh, in London. We got a last-minute gig in London, Ontario at the Spoken Rim. So at University of Western Ontario, they had a club. All the universities used to have clubs on campus where bands would play. And we went and did the gig, and I came back to work the next day, and he said, where were you yesterday? The boss called me. It was a chain of a bunch of different stores. And I said, oh, I was sick. He goes, no, you weren't. I go, no, nah, you're right. I was had a gig. We got a last-minute gig. He went, you're fired. I was, <laughs> I was like, cool. <laughs> and uh, November 29th, 1981. Wow. I always remember that date. Because I've never worked for anybody since. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Outside of the stint where I was on television on Canadian Idol, um, I've never got a paycheck from anybody except myself. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's pretty. That's a, a, a pretty nice get. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, it comes with its downside, sure, you know, when you're built, trying to build a business and, you know, staying alive, you know, borrowing to pay your phone bills and things sure, right. just to keep a business alive. But so as you know. far, as far as building the business, so November 29th, 1981, you're managing this band called the purple hearts, the yeah. purple hearts. Uh-huh. So where does it go from, where do you go from there? Did you jump right into, I can, I'm going to manage bands now. That's what I'm going to do. Or is that just, well, was I was just managing enough? that bad, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, I guess I'll figure it out. <laughs> And that's what we did. We figured it out. And I used to hang out at, uh, there's a couple of big agencies in town at the time. And I used to just hang out there looking for gigs for my band and learning from people that worked there. And, you know, I found some people that were willing to, that liked me, that were willing to take a chance with me and my ideas. And one of the, and, um, one of the guys, uh, was an agent there, but signed this band to management. And then I came, started working with him as his right-hand guy, mm. a guy named Dave Kirby. And um, uh, Dave had a band called The Tenants, and they had a big hit on the radio in, in, in the 80s, in early 80s. And, um, and then I signed a band called New Regime. Because I had them open one time for the Purple Hearts. And I went, oh, these guys are great. And I signed them. And we ended up getting them a record deal with RCA. And so, and then the Purple Hearts kind of fell apart. But now I had this 
this uh, recording act called New Regime, but we were also, between us, we were managing a lot of these tribute acts that were happening in the 80s, and that's what was bringing in the money to pay the bills. So we had a bunch of them, and they were all quite successful, and I really learned from Dave um, how to keep bands on the road because that was the thing, is keep them working, because that's how the money was coming in. And, um, and because New Regime got signed to RCA, I had a relationship with RCA. And that's how we ended up licensing the first hip record mm-hmm. to RCA, because okay. I had a relationship there. So let's jump into the band, the, tra- mm-hmm. the Tragically Hip. Um, it's kind of why we're here, right? Yeah, yeah it's kind okay. of why we're here. Yeah, I'm interested. You know? Yeah, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. <laughs> so we were talking briefly before we started recording about, um, you know, I guess the, the thrust of my question is, you know, what was going through your mind when you heard that demo cassette the first time? So it was interesting. There's a guy named John Paracall who was... Um, he was a radio consultant, so he would consult radio stations on playlists and what tracks to add and, you know, how to, how to kind of position your, your, the image of a station in a marketplace. And he worked with a guy named Dave Charles. And um, Alan Gregg and I became partners in um, January of 1986, and we had met in December of 85 through a mutual friend. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and we decided we were going to get into business together in January of 86. And um, we got, he got a tape sent to him in August of 86. And they, uh, John Pericle happened to be in Alan's office. And Alan said to John, oh, I'm going to put this on. And they listened to it. And Alan calls me. He says, you know, I got this cassette from my friend, Hugh Siegel. And... Uh, his his brother-in-law knows these guys in Kingston. And uh, John thinks it's pretty interesting. I think it's pretty interesting. I'll play it for you on Sunday when we go to the baseball game. I said, okay. So he played it for me in his car. And I said, you're right. It's, it's interesting. This guy's got an interesting voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and Alan goes, we should see them. I said, yeah, I'll set up a gig. So I called the guys over at Larry's Hideaway, and we set up a gig for them to open for a Rolling Stones clone band. <laughs> and we didn't really care. We just needed to see them play. Sure. And, they, you know, they went on like 8, 8.30 or something like that. And um, not having seen them before and only heard them and knowing what they were like when they first started, um, we probably couldn't have picked a better audience for them to play in front yeah, of the Stones, uh, because they were a two guitar bass and drums kind of yeah, R&B yeah. kind of thing right that's what they were doing and and the Stones were like you know it was Robbie and Gord St. Clair's favorite bands but I didn't know any of that mm-hmm. we just it, we, that was just the the slot that was open on Saturday night right you know and um I met them beforehand said hello went up to the dress room said hello and then went downstairs, and, and John, actually, Paracol, came along with us, so the three of us are sitting at this table, and um, they come on, and Gord Downey says, I can only give you everything in that deep, 
tenor of his voice and then does one of his jackknife jumps with the microphone and then starts to sing that song by them. The Van Morris's Van Morrison's oh, band, yeah. them, oh. I Can Only Give You Everything. Yeah. And I go, holy shit. And I look at Alan and I, I, I look at Alan, I look at John and I literally go, we're signing these guys tonight. Goes, yep, 
they were like they felt it too sure and then they played like a 40 minute set of some covers and originals no stones tunes because they knew and you have to understand that a lot of the clubs then you sat at tables they were like cabaret type tables you get served at your table and that's what they weren't all standing pushing to the front kind of places and that larry's hideaway was a, a a room like that and they finished their set and the whole place stood up and they got a standing ovation nice and we were like okay we're on to something here and then so we all of us the band myself alan and john we went to the pilot tavern on cumberland street and we sat and had beers and sat around in the booth and planned world domination yeah i can only give you everything wow and and the funny thing is is alan when he said that alan didn't know he was about to do a cover song alan just thought alan looked at me and he went great attitude like thought (laughs) like he was it's a great attitude right but it what really was because it really was what Gord was, which yeah. like when he hit that stage, he oh, gave yeah. you everything. Yeah, and it really amazing. did send the message. That's you know? amazing. Yeah. How many, uh, setting up showcases like this and, and, you know, taking a look at bands, how often did you do this? in this? Time a lot. Period? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say I, we did it a lot because, you know, we, we would go out and see bands. Sure. Right. We would go out and see bands, but we wouldn't, we weren't setting up showcases mm-hmm. Um, for bands that we didn't know anything about. Right. You know, like we heard this and we thought we should see these guys. They were from Kingston. We needed to see, see them quickly. So we figured it was incumbent upon us to kind of put it together. Right. Right. It was easy. It was a phone call. Okay, guys, you need to show up at this place at this time. Larry's hideaway, blah, 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 blah. You know, I think they had played once or twice in Toronto. Right. Previously at the Horseshoe or something. And like one of those multi-act bills or something. Yeah. That was before us. Were you getting and, like a and, ton and, of tapes from people at this time period? Not really. Yeah. I wouldn't say that. No. So not too much like demo fatigue or anything. Yeah. Like that. No, it wasn't like that. Yeah. It was. It was fairly new. Like I was managing. Um, I was. I had a uh, this. I had new regime, and I had a couple of cover bands that mm-hmm. you know were eventually trying to be uh, recording acts, but they were on the road making a living playing covers. Right. And, you know, we sort of developing them. So I, I wouldn't say, like, we, we had this massive roster or anything. Sure. Um, it was just one of those things. Hugh Siegel was a guy that Alan knew that um, married a girl from Kingston whose brother Fraser, you know, went to Queens with the guys and hung out with them. And he had a van, I think, and he used to, you know. You have to understand, Paul had only joined the band maybe three, four months before this. Oh, wow. wow. Okay, great. Because they had a sax player. The original band, there was a guy named Davis Manning. And Paul was going to move. You saw this in the movie. He was going to move to Nashville. Mm -hmm. And Davis quit the band. And they were like, well, we should just get, you know, Gord didn't want Paul to move to Nashville. Gord wanted Paul in the band. So Gord was like, you know, to the other guys, you know, we should get Paul in our band. So, because he was his best friend. Mm -hmm. That was the right call. Pretty good. Do you recall? Do you recall the song that you heard on the cassette? Like, do you- well, it was more than one. There was a few. I wish I could remember. That's that's. I've I- thought about it a lot. Sure, of course. Right? Like, what did I hear? <laughs> yeah. I can I can remember hearing Gord's the timber in Gord's voice yeah. is what I can remember. It I can't remember the resonates. song. It may have been. 
I don't know. I, you know, I, I probably, it's funny because I was talking to Johnny yesterday, actually talk, talking to Johnny today. If I asked him, he would probably know. Yeah, sure. So I should probably ask him. <laughs> And then he can, and then I'll know the answer to what I heard. But I, you know, we just put the music in. I I don't even know if anything ended up on the first EP. Maybe I'm not sure. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, that's fun. How fast did things start moving? You guys sit down with the pilot and plan for the future. Well, dominance, and then we kind of we we sort of wrote up a plan for them and how we saw them, and um, and we the first thing to do was get them on the road. Mm-hmm. keep them working and keep them writing. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find an agent. So I was booking all the shows and, you know, trying to keep them working. And then actually right around the corner from where we are now, there was a studio called sounds interchange. Mm-hmm. And Alan was friends with the guy who owned the studio because they used to do a lot of, um, um, commercials and stuff in there as well. It was, a, it was like, it was a big high end studio. Some, some records were made there, but it was mostly for, commercials and alan knew the guy that owned it and i used to play in this pickup hockey game on sunday nights with a lot of musicians and one of the guys that played with us was kenny greer and you know we'd play every sunday night and andy frost from q107 played there was a lot of guys you would know who they are right played in that game and um and I said to Kenny, you know, we're, we're working with this young band, maybe because he had talked to me about wanting to get into production and stuff. I said, mm-hmm. maybe you'd want to work with these guys. And Kenny was in, in Red Rider. Yeah. So he was like a known guy, and, and he was a big part of that Red Rider sound mm-hmm. with the slide and the guitar and everything. And this was a guitar-based band. And so we put them together, and we got some time in um, the studio. And we went in and recorded five songs. And we couldn't really get anyone to pay attention to it. So we decided, well, let's add two more songs and we'll call it an EP and maybe we can find someone to license it. And the band was building a following by then. And, and one of the things we had done is we had um, set up these... Um, residencies and we did a residency at the hotel isabella and we did the middle wednesday of every month Mm. and every time they'd have a show alan and i would invite different people from the industry to come to dinner with us and come see our new band Uh but we didn't we it wasn't like oh we want you to sign them it was nothing like that it was just social it was just just social but come see our new band and everybody would see them and go you know, wow. But because we had these low, we set up these low, wow, those guys are really good. Wow, those guys are really good. How come you're not shopping them? Well, you know, we're just, you know, we're not ready yet. We're just building it. And by about the sixth or seventh month of doing this, we had lineups around the block. Oh, wow. So we were building this live following, which was always what we wanted to do is, you know, let's build the band. Yeah. Right. Then we'll worry about the rest. Let's build the band. And so we put these two other songs on the EP that we recorded live off the floor at Phase One Recording Studios, which was still out, still in Scarborough. And, um, and we put out a seven-song EP, and we got RCA to license it from us. And, and that was... And because we knew if we wanted to get them across the country, we needed a calling card. Mm-hmm. And we knew it wasn't great. Like, we knew it was okay, it's raw. It's raw. It's but it wasn't. It wasn't like 
like they don't even play stuff. They had they right. stopped playing stuff off that record ages ago. Right. Right. No matter what, they just won't. They yeah. don't play it. Right. So even though like Small Town Bring Down and stuff like that, and we shot the video in Kingston and we yeah. did that whole thing. And you mentioned Small Town Bring Down as as one of the songs that you sort of you know have feelings about um, or. Well, because it was the first song, and we were very specific with our plans. Um, we did things that, like, people thought we were fucking crazy because we were breaking rules like all the way. Example. Well, we sat down with the with the record company, and we said, look, we know this isn't, like, a big, huge hit record to, you know, what's out there. Mm-hmm. And remember, we were early in that sort of alternative sound. Oh, yeah. yeah. There was 5440. There was the Pursuit of Happiness mm-hmm. with I'm an Adult Now. Right? Th- remember, this is um, 1988 was mm-hmm. when it came out. Well, we actually put it out in Kingston in 1987. Yeah. And that was because we were going to put it out early. But the label said, no, we got to put it out in January. We're going to get killed at Christmas time, blah, 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 with a new record. And the band came to us and said, but we told all our friends it was going to come out <laughs> early. And we said, so we went to the label. We said, let's just put it out in Kingston. Well, we can't do that. You know, the retailers. But how many retailers? There's two retailers. <laughs> we'll put the records in our car and we'll drive them to the retailers and we'll drop them <laughs> off. Right. And, and we released it in Kingston. Well, it became the number two record in Kingston behind U2. Wow. Which I think was Joshua That's Tree. That's Joshua yeah. Tree, yeah. In 87, <laughs> right? So December 87, yeah, okay. yeah. we were the number two record. So when we put the record out nationally, we said that was the story is that in Kingston, this was the number two record behind Joshua Tree. Wow. So we sat the record company down and we said, look, we know there's only about seven or eight stations that will play this record. So we don't want you servicing all 30 stations. We want you to service those eight stations only. Mm. And they said, well, if we do that, the other guys are going to complain that we didn't service them. And we said, they don't even know this band. Like, why would they complain? (laughs) We said, if they complain, say sorry. We didn't think you'd like it and send it to them. Mm -hmm. And we did the same thing with media. We didn't service major dailies. We only serviced the weeklies. And if a daily called, we'd say the same thing. Oh, we didn't think, and it's kind of a tiny little indie thing. We didn't think you'd like it. Oh, sure, you can have a copy. Oh, that's. So you were getting, like, you're building this following by doing that because you're getting these, you know. Because they were asking us. Bigger market. We were creating the demand exactly. yes. for it by not giving it to someone, by not spreading it out. Because we knew if we went to 30 stations and got eight ads, we'd be a failure. If we went to eight stations and got eight ads at radio, we were a success. Absolutely. And that was the plan. And they all thought we were nuts. They fought us all the way, and then it started working. (laughs) Now, we didn't sell a lot of records. We didn't. And, in fact, we even told the press people, do not get reviews for the record. We want you to get reviews for the show. Again, that Hmm. live Right, mm-hmm. we want build pe- that demand. We want people to come to the shows. Get media out to the shows. We don't care if they review the record. The record was a calling card. Mm. Kind of how things are today. 
where people are using their records to sell the tickets. Well, that was always our MO, is we knew. And we, we, I remember there was a writer in Calgary that wrote, you know, um, because shows then were five or ten bucks. It was like under ten bucks, six bucks to see a show or something. And it was like, save your six dollars on the record, buy a ticket to the show. Which is great. Which is all we ever, we, those were our greatest reviews. Yes. So by the time the EP ran its course, we had sold about 11,000 copies, which by today's standards would be amazing, right? Yeah. Um, but then it was kind of, it was small, right? You know, gold records were 50,000 and people were yeah. regularly selling gold records. But we were playing, we were selling out 1,000 seats across the country right. by the end of 88. We were selling out massive venues that bands with gold records weren't doing. Because it was all word of mouth. And we had fortuitous situations. First time going into Winnipeg, the guy didn't like how they looked and after one set fired them. Wow. Well, the media just jumped all over it. And before you know it, every club in town was offering him a gig. And we went from, you know, having two three-night gigs in this, in this, for this one guy because he had these two hotels and we were supposed to play three nights at one and three nights at the other. Next thing you know, we're at, you know, University of Manitoba and we're at this other club, and we're at this other club. And it became this big thing in Winnipeg that everyone was getting behind this band that was got fired by this guy yeah. that no one really liked anyways. And by the Saturday night, there was a lineup around the block to get in to see this band that no one really knew, but... There's a lot of hype. Right. Wow. So you build up this live relationship and the hype and everything's rolling. And if you don't have a debut album, then it crushes. It's kind of all for naught, right? And well, the, we had the did, we I, had the EP. Yeah, but then you got to. I guess you have to deliver on the next thing. Well, and we never we never thought about having to deliver. Oh yeah. <clears throat> I think that's the mistake a lot of people make is they like it was just the next evolution. Sure. Right. Okay. Time to. You know, our our relationship with RCA sort of w went downhill because the guy who brought us on was gone. A new guy came in. Mm -hmm. He wanted to do a different kind of deal because we only had a one-year license with the record. It was ours, and we walked, mm -hmm. and we started talking to other record companies. And, uh, you know, we found a home. Mm -hmm. um, and we ended up getting signed by MCA in the U.S. And that's... And that's the beginning of Up to Here. Right. Getting ready to make that record. Right. We had a bunch of those songs already written. Because there is, there, I think, floating around on the internet out there, there are like Kenny Greer demos of, yep. of a lot of the Up to Here material. Yeah, 38 years old, I think. I think New Orleans is sinking. Because they used to woodshed those songs in the shows.
so they would play them live right all the time as they were writing them they would play them live so there were a lot of shows that they were doing where those songs were in the shows which really became you know sort of a calling card for the for the band in general right like just working out working out great ideas you know in front of the in front of the yeah. in front of the live crowd right and building anticipation i can remember seeing them live and just thinking like i can't wait to hear this song on a record that i just heard you know like so i'm already thinking about the next record while i'm at the show because they because but but this is one of the things that a lot of people don't realize that was part of our plan was that it was a fan first strategy right because we knew that's who they were right they were music fans themselves we were music fans and it was like always about you know do the do the right thing for the fan keep the ticket prices low um you know just be real right Mm -hmm. be authentic and so um, they knew that because the fans lo- loved them so much, even in the early years, it wasn't as big, but whoever did show up loved them. And we always underplayed markets, so we always had sold-out shows. Whether we played a 300-seater or a 1,000-seater, it was always packed. And, and um, we knew that the, the fans would want to hear new stuff from us. Like, we could do that. Mm-hmm. So that's what they did. Pretty amazing. Um, And that was building, that's because they had that relationship with their fans. And it's something I kind of stress all the time with any young bands I work with. It's like, if you don't have that relationship, then you're only as good as your next single. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the kids are coming up on, you know, YouTube and they're just doing everything at home. They don't have the, I don't know, the relationship with the audience or the stage presence to... But you, know, you I don't connect, think you can. Yeah. I don't think you can teach charisma. No, absolutely not. You know, there's a reason there's only there was only one Gordowney, mm-hmm. right? Like you can't teach what he had. No, you know. <laughs> so, so um, yeah. So we ended up signing with um, with MCA. It was a guy named Bruce Dickinson signed the band, and uh, he he came up with this idea of working with Don Smith. And Don had been the engineer on a lot of Tom Petty records and worked with um, the expensive winos, uh, which was Keith Keith Richards' thing. So these were all bands that and people that the band loved. And um, we decided, let's go to Ardent in Memphis and make a record. And uh, that was up to here. What a a record. Yeah, pretty good debut. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, as far as... um, the time spent recording with uh, Don Smith in Memphis and New Orleans for Road Apples, right? Right. Uh, any memorable stories from any of that stuff? You popping down or being there or like what's your what's your process like when? I don't. I, I'm not a guy that hangs out in the studio. It's sort of like let them do their thing. Um, I do remember we we put on a show uh, in Memphis just to do a show while we were there. Because we, we hadn't played Memphis. So it was like, okay, we're here, let's do a show. No one showed up. It was like 10 people, but we didn't care. Like, And we all went to to uh, Elvis's uh, house oh, and did yeah. the Elvis tour. And nice. It was, you know, Elvis's cousin took us on the tour. And, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm Elvis's cousin. Young girl, and she was the cousin. And um, went to Graceland, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So it was, it was, uh, but it was almost spinal tappy, and like we're looking at the grave, and we start laughing because we realize it's like the scene from Spinal Tap where <laughs> they're all looking at the grave, and it was kind of had that thing, you know. But it was, it was, it was fun. I, I like I, again, I was only in and out, and then New Orleans. I remember Alan and I went um, went down. It was like super. It was September. It was super hot, super humid. Um, they were just running tape, like Road Apples. I think there was like sixty reels a two inch, and they wow. were just, you know, jamming and they capture stuff and you know. Because Road Apples would be the first, the the first record they record where they don't have years of of right of road to mm-hmm. sort of uh, right. Like that's the first one that they're writing sort of. On the spot, right? Well, no, they they had woodshedded some of those songs on on tour, um, but it definitely. Well, look, you have you know your whole life to do your first record, that's and right. you have six months to do your second yeah, record. Right. Yeah. You know, that's kind of <laughs> how it works, yeah. right? So, um, yeah, so that was. So was that part of the rationale to go with Don Smith again? Uh, no, I like think it was a listen. And- listen, up to here was successful. We had a sounds great. New Orleans is sinking. Went top ten in America and rock radio, and so we had uh, it did. You know, it blew up here. We were double platinum. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of like a bit of a no brainer. If it ain't broke, don't yeah. fix it, right? And so then we did Road Apples. Um, and it was a great experience. It was one of those where Dan Lanois had bought this house and was starting to make records there, but hadn't really ever set it up as a studio. He, he had stuff in there. And when when Don wanted to go in there, um, the uh, him and Dan talked on the phone, and Dan was like, well, what speakers should I bring in, you know, this kind of stuff, because he had a board, but... Don wanted certain speakers brought in and things like that that he could use for monitoring purposes and not monitors for the band. But the band was set up around the pool table and Don was just in another room, like the living room, basically. There was no separation. Oh, wow. So the records got much more of a liver feel than, than, oh, yeah. than up to here because it wasn't a traditional studio. It was like, you know, in a house. That is so cool. Yeah, you can yeah. hear it in the album. It feels like five guys in a room. Like there's a a sweaty presence. Yeah. <laughs> on that whole record. Yeah. 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 But the record company in America, they didn't like that record. No. It mm. was kind of DOA. Mm. They didn't them. like? No. No, they didn't like that record. It didn't. Why? Because it didn't have Norley's The Sinking Part or, 2? Or, or Blow It High Doe or like mm. it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, they didn't like it. It was DOA for sure. Yeah. So what, but we just kept touring and we kept doing our thing and we sold more records and you know it sold three hundred thousand in, in Canada and by that point um, up to here was now at three hundred thousand so we had a nice base going and you know it was time to make another record. All right, so you go to make the you, you go to make the next record and I can never say his last name. Chris Sangaridis. Thank you. <laughs> Greg usually corrects me because I just, I just, right. I just butcher it. Right. And he's recently passed. Um, but you go to England to record this. Well, one. that's where Chris lives, and that's where he recorded. That's where he records a lot of records. And that, that's just that's how it is. That's that's what's happening here. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, let's go to England and make a record. Why not? Yeah. You totally. know, <laughs> watching the pound 
go way up against the American dollar while we're there because our budgets are in American dollars. And so it became a very expensive record. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. But it was interesting because Chris had a completely different philosophy on recording. And he said, in order to make it sound like you guys do live, we need to record every instrument individually, mm. not all you guys sitting in a room. So he did the exact opposite approach. How was that taken by, by the band and by... Listen, they liked what Chris had already done, so they went along with it. You know, mm. they weren't going to question... At yeah. that point, they, they, I don't think they felt they had enough experience as in production to kind of... But that was a big learning experience for them. They could learn what they like better. And right. They, that record is obviously... It did fully, pretty good. Fully, completely, and it's a <laughs> monster record. Right. Just a monster. Uh, was the label happy with that record? Oh, yeah. I mean... Um, <laughs> okay, good. It was interesting, though, because... The American label loved it. They would not put out Locked in the Trunk of a Car as a single. Really? Yes. Because the band wouldn't edit fucked up out of the track. Mm. Good for the mm. band. Good for the band. But Sweet. yeah, that's got to be. <laughs> and America, <laughs> America was like, yeah, even yeah. to this day. Yeah, like, I'll take that. Right? Mm -hmm. So today you could put it on a streaming service. It wouldn't matter. Right. But then your only option was getting it radio. on the radio. Yeah. Right. Um, in fact, we left it in the video, and Much Music, we just we just decided to leave it in, and mm -hmm. Much Music let it go. Yeah. I don't know how old I am, if I'm armor in my belly, from the 15th century, conquistador I think, I don't know how.
if you look at that release schedule, we actually released um, that record in Canada in in um, October sixth, nineteen ninety two, but it but it didn't get released in America until January nineteen ninety three. This is when we put out Encourage was the first single in America, hmm. and that ended up going top ten rock and top ten alternative as well. So we had some success with that. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's monster success, right? Top ten, but but again. Locked in the Trunk of a Car was never released in, as a single. It was released in England as a single. Sure. I have some killer um, CD singles that they made in England, and it was like a fold-out thing. Like, it was one of those pop-up things, yeah. and when you pulled it, the trunk opened. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. I have, a, I have a few of them in my storage locker. So. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty good. And that was for locked in the trunk of a car. But again, like the language wise, um, you know, they didn't call it call it a trunk. They called it a boot. Oh, right. Right. So it was like, what's a trunk? Was like, <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember one of my one of my favorite things, which was kind of when we knew we, we were kind of on at the end of our ropes with MCA in America, was when we delivered the record. The president of the label, who used to be a big radio promotion guy, and after he left the label, went back to being a big radio promotion guy. And he was a very successful radio promotion guy. Um, he said, uh, you know, that song, 50 Mission Cap, if it wasn't about hockey, it'd be a hit. <laughs> <laughs> so well. the, the writing was starting to be on the wall. So yeah. that's the last MCA record then? No. Well, yeah, it, it was the last MCA record. We had recorded um, uh, uh, Day for Night for them, but they didn't release it. Because huh. it, it also has a different release date in, in America. Yeah, right? because we put it out through Atlantic. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Okay, gotcha. So it was MCA in Canada, though. I see. I, I renegotiated the deal. We would leave MCA in the U.S., the records would stay with the Canadian company, but we would own own them outside of Canada. Gotcha. So that stuff that must be a lot of uh, a lot of <laughs> like a lot of work when you're looking for like a brand new label with, but you've got the following. We have a following. Like, like everything makes sense. There, there was people that knew us that I knew people in Atlantic, and you know. Um, I don't think um, Day for Night didn't really have hits on it. You know, it had amazing songs. Mm -hmm. Yes. But it, there was no out-and-out -out sort of obvious radio hits like Courage or something like that mm -hmm. on it. And I knew that going in. And so Day for Night with Atlantic was sort of like getting to know the label. We did a lot of great touring on Day for Night. Mm -hmm. um, we toured with the Stones. We toured with Paige Plant. We did Saturday Night Live on that record. Mm -hmm. So it was a reputation-building record um, for us. Um, and, and uh, you know, when you think about it, then when we came with Trouble at the Hen House, we had a big hit. We had a single, which was Ahead by a Century. Mm -hmm. So stepping back to... <clears throat> to um Stay for night for just a moment. Tell us the story about the stones. Like, uh, like how does that? Like, so we're interesting bookmarks there. That you so a couple of things you need to know. When we sat down with the band, we told them that in 
10 years, they'd headline their first arena. That was what we told them when we first started working with them, that if you're going to do this right, in 10 years, you'll headline your first arena show. And that was 86. February 10th, 1995, which was nine years Maple later. Maple Leaf Gardens. Maple Leaf Gardens. That's right, yeah. And so I'm standing at the board, and a guy named Arthur Fogel, who's a pretty famous guy in the music industry, at that point was working for Concert Productions International, CPI they were called. They were the Stones promoters. And he's standing beside me at the, at the front of house board at Maple Leaf Gardens. We're watching the show. And he looks at me and he goes, do you want to play with the Stones this summer? And I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> I guess and so. And he goes, he goes, okay. <laughs> There's four shows in, in Europe. Um, we'll put it together. I said, great. Jeez, so crazy. fast forward to like right after Saturday Night Live... Um, Paige Plant are playing at the Dome, mm-hmm. and I get a call the next day saying, you know, do you want to do shows with Paige Plant? They saw them on, they saw the... No, uh, Donald Donald Tarleton was was with them, and they were looking for an opening act, and Donald told them about this band and said they'd be perfect for you guys. They're on Atlantic, you guys are on Atlantic, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and Robert Plant loved Day for Night, loved the record. Because it's a muso record. It's much more of a muso record than like sort of a pop type record, right? It, yeah. There was no courage, like I said before. So Robert loved the record, and they offered us um, 17 shows uh, in America, in arenas, and some amphitheaters. And while we were on the, on the tour, um, we were in San Jose, and... I was at the show, and um, tour manager and the manager said, hey, can you come into the office? We need to talk to you. And we were like, oh, I was like, oh, fuck, what now? Like, <laughs> something's going down or whatever. And they said, hey, listen, we're going to do 13 more shows in October. Do you guys want to do those shows with us? Robert really loves the band. And I was like, yeah, sure, we'll do them. Wow. So we ended up doing close to 30 shows wow. with them. Oh, that's great. Um, if I could jump back to Saturday Night Live for a second, we uh, every, we hip fans constantly talk about it. It's a great performance, and we're you know waiting like this is the moment they can take off in the states. Uh, and a lot of people always wondered. I didn't too much, but I, I feel like I'd be doing them a disservice for not asking if it came up to do one of the big songs to do a Courage or. New Orleans is sinking or blow it high dough. We were promoting with, with a, we were promoting a new record. Yeah, for sure. Like this every is, everyone after the fact always says, Oh, they should have played New Orleans yeah, is sinking yeah. or they should have done this, they should have done that. It was never even a notion. It no, it was good. like what songs right. are we doing? We're doing you know, we're doing uh, Grace Two and Nautical Disaster. Perfect. Those are the two best songs live off this record. Mm-hmm. That's what we're doing. Awesome. And and yeah, and they certainly are. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, that is a. Everyone's like, why didn't they? Yeah, in our know, threads, like, our conversation threads on our, the yeah, Facebook, but every, and everybody, everybody, <laughs> it's the big what if, right? Yeah. But it wasn't about like it, they were being true to form. Yeah, absolutely, right? Like no argument from either of us. Too. No, no, that's no, why. Well, but real, real hip fans get it. Real <laughs> hip fans get it. It's strange when people you know? don't. It's strange when people are sort of no, like, because everyone you know? looks at every opportunity as just like another commercial opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, uh, especially Gord, he he probably couldn't, you know, live with himself to 
he wasn't that person. He yeah. always, like, people don't realize, like, have you, did you ever hear him say on stage, and you guys have seen enough shows, right? Did you ever hear him say, here's the single off our new record? No. <laughs> no. Right? No. Ever? No. Did, did you ever hear him say anything that sounded like he was trying to sell you something? No. Come meet us after. We have T-shirts. Anything like that? No. Right. From Kingston, Ontario, Canada, right. Because he was Mueller, in the Walter moment. Frank High and me, it is my honor to introduce to America my friends that tragically hit.
Yeah, I want to go. I, I want to go backwards. Um, I know we're rolling forward here, but I want to go backwards to '93 because it was such a pivotal moment in my life. That that was my first time seeing them. Where did you see them? Markham Fairgrounds. Mm. Yeah, it was on my 19th birthday. So wow. it was like you know, just a spectacular day. 1993. That's right. July. That's right. July 24th. Yeah. yeah. Uh, an amazing, amazing. Was day. that the Friday or the Saturday? That Saturday. Was the Saturday. Yeah, because it was twenty three and twenty four. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to go to both so bad in camp, but I could only get tickets for one. Like this was back when you, we were using like multiple phone lines in my in my parents' house to like try and call Ticketmaster. Although there tickets. was tickets for there was we we didn't we sold a lot of tickets, but we didn't. Saturday was sold out, but Friday wasn't completely sold out. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't do the maybe just. But, and we weren't that expensive. Like the tickets no. were by today's standards, it was like a giveaway almost. Yeah. You know, because yeah. that was also part of our mo. Is like do multiple nights, um, and keep the ticket prices low so people could come more than one night because the set list changed all the time. That's right. Um, so roadside came about because we'd done a lot of um, uh, European festivals. And there was a festival called Lollapalooza that had come through, but it never toured the country no, in Canada. Toronto, Vancouver, it played Vancouver. and it played Montreal, okay. I think, but it never went right across the country. And mm-hmm. we thought, you know, someone's got to take this right across the country, and so um, someone take this kind of show, this kind of alternative music thing, and um, we came up with the idea, and. We, we went to, me and a guy named Ralph James, who's an agent, he was like a, young, a younger agent at the time, he used to be in a band, younger meaning in years, but not in age. Um, he's a big time agent to this day. Um, we went and had a meeting at CPI and pitched them the idea of it. And they bought the idea. And then, you Sorry, know, what's CPI? Concert Productions okay. International. So they were our promoters. Gotcha. So we went to them and said, we have this idea. You know, um, we want to do this. Um, we want to go into non-traditional venues, meaning fields and build cities and do it that way. Hippie vendor things, like do the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And they loved it. They loved the idea. Camping, parking, like, you know, they saw lots of different revenue streams. And and we saw it as an opportunity to bring a real festival across the country and play places that, that weren't getting this kind of... Uh, music in their towns and um and then we started to uh you know try and build build it and you know with their help because they had reached with a lot of international agents and international bands we managed to we had this list of bands that we thought would be cool and we were going through them with the band and um and you know uh mark norman who was running um, the west west coast part it was called Periscope but it was part of Concert Production International he was running Periscope he had a relationship with the Midnight Oil guys and mm. he said I think we can get Midnight Oil and we all loved Midnight Oil and how could you not and and um, and then we started you know building it out of that and um, and Hothouse Flowers had the same agent in the U.S. as Midnight Oil, and and 
Um, you know, the International X didn't have Canadian agents. They just had a, a North American agent out okay. of the U.S. So we were able to get Hothouse Flowers. And the band loved Lanois' record. And because we had recorded Road Apples in his studio, we wanted, we put Dan on the show. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was like that kind of thing. Real, com real community type vibe. Yeah, and then like in, in Vancouver, we had we had different lineups in different places. Like in Vancouver, we had World Party on the bill. We had Perubu oh, on wow. the bill. So we had different lineups. And I remember in Toronto, we had like the five main acts, Crash Vegas was one of them, play on the, on the Friday night. But Saturday, we had music all day. Yeah. Right? We had all kinds of bands. So we had the Pursuit of Happiness. We had... Uh, Thomas Trio and the Red Halbino. We had a ton of bands playing all day. So we made it like a real all-day fest, which is what Vancouver was like and mm -hmm. some of the other ones. We were adding bands, you know, in different places. But there was five bands that were the core of, of, the, of the festival. Mm -hmm. And then you'd pick up, like, for, to, to run the whole day, you'd pick up, like, more regional acts? No, no. Or? I mean, World Party was a regional. It's just like no, we had tried to get we tried to get World Party and Peruba to do more shows, but they were only available. So we were like, well, let's just use them in Vancouver and Victoria. You know, mm -hmm. like we'll use them for those shows. And that's kind of how we but we had the five sort of main acts that were doing all the shows. And then when it came time for 95 to do it, um, we uh we we were because we had established it. It was easier to get bands to commit. So mm -hmm. then then it was the same lineup for all the shows. Ah, okay. Yeah, I did go to ninety five as well. I didn't go to ninety seven though. I don't think ninety seven was probably financially the most successful year because it was like it was a big thing to oh, pull that off, deal, yeah. right? You know, not every show was as successful as the other shows. Because, you know, sometimes we go into Ottawa and it's like, it's a mud fest. It's pouring rain. No one showed, no one, we sold a lot of tickets in advance, but we didn't get the walk up that we would, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it was successful as a tour. Yeah. Not every show was as successful as the next. And it was very expensive to do. Mm -hmm. And again, because we weren't charging more than $50, it was, it was like, you know, we was were. There, was there ever a thought to do a fourth one? Or when, when I think it, it start, after 97, it was starting to get a little tired, I think. Like, we, we needed a bit of a break from gotcha. it. You know, the, the album cycle started to change slightly. So we were trying to do it every two years, but 99 didn't really work out. And then 99, we ended up playing Woodstock 99, which... Right. which what a performance that is. Right? That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So... Like all that crap that happened at Woodstock happened yeah. after we left. Yeah. <laughs> like we were out, we were gone. You know, I was home. I was living in New yeah. York at the time. I remember, I remember not leaving Sunday morning and driving home and not looking at the newspaper or anything, mm -hmm. not turning on the TV that night. Like, no, I, no, not turning on the TV, nothing that night. Woke up the next morning, was walking to my office and looked at one of the newspaper boxes and there was like, Woodstock burns and there was like <laughs> pictures of, of things on fire on the front page of the paper. And I was like, when the fuck did that happen? <laughs> oh man. It was kind of aggro though. Saturday night when we were there, it was kind of aggro. Sure. You could tell it was, things were going to happen. Yeah. You know, Limp Bizkit and yeah. Limp Bizkit kind of got it. Real the, like the plywood went out and people. Oh, I was, I was right there when it was happening That's and it was crazy. aggro. Yeah. 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 yeah, the end of the 90s were a weird, 
change. Yeah, and then music. so it was happening with us too. Like I don't think there was there wasn't the desire. Like we kind of did it, and '97 was so good. Like it really was so good. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of uh, um, uh, the lineup, you know, Los Lobos and Cheryl Crow, and I mean, every year had great lineups. I mean, even 95 getting Ziggy Marley. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. was like we couldn't find that one final band. There was that, we needed that anchor, you know, like that Midnight Oil that we had the year before. Yeah. And I was on vacation in Jamaica. And um, I was staying at this place that I always stay at. And they were, they were doing shows there. And the guy who owned the place I've kn- I knew for many years, like I'd been staying there since 1986. And this was... Um, uh, you know, maybe March 95, I was there. And uh, he says, yeah, Ziggy's going to be playing here. And and uh, he was a guy from Montreal that owned this place where I used to stay. It was a small, independent resort kind of place. And he says, you should meet his manager, Adis. So we're having lunch one day, Adis and I. And I said, what are you guys doing this summer? Um, and he was like, well, we, you know, we have a, this, are you, are you available in this time period? And he said, yeah. I said, I have an idea. Let me, you know, let's stay in touch. When I go back next week, we'll, we'll see. And I reached out to the promoters and I reached out to the band and I talked to the band. I said, I think I found the act. I said, it would be so cool because I know our fans like, yeah. and Ziggy Marley's show is basically it's, it's Bob Marley's band. Right. And Ziggy and Steven and they all they do is Bob Marley songs and <laughs> like our audience will love this and it's a big band and it'll sound amazing and, oh, and everyone, summertime. Yeah, summertime, yeah. reggae, like yeah. you can't lose with yeah. those songs, like oh, the yeah. greatest some of the greatest songs of all time. Yeah. And the band was like, Yeah, that would be awesome, right? And um we I contacted this guy Deese and I said you know, we made an offer through their agent. And uh, fortunately, the guy who was their agent, um, I knew. And, uh, you know, he loved the idea. He knew how big the band was here. This is their agent in the U.S., but he knew how big the band was here and how much of a big deal it would be. And we negotiated the right fee, and they agreed to do the shows. And it was it was awesome. Like, it was awesome having them on, on, the, on the road with us. Oh, yeah. Um, and the th- interesting thing is, it, that's why it was so easy for us to get Cheryl Crow, because the same guy was Cheryl Crow's agent. Mm. So when we made the call to him, he already knew, like, yeah, this is a slam dunk kind of thing. Like, yeah, yeah. he could say to Cheryl, look, this is going to be, like, the real deal for you, and you'll be positioned. You know, she went on right before us, so it was like, you know. Nice. So... As we as we go into roll into the two thousands, you say like album cycles are changing, album sales are definitely changing, and they're changing um, for everybody. Yeah, especially in that in that world. That's what I mean. Yeah, like, I mean Napster has is, started to take effect. That's right. Um, you know, I saw the writing on the wall in ninety five. You know, we sat the band down in ninety four and said we need to get on the internet. That's why they have the hip dot com. Like nobody was doing that. No. Record companies didn't have mail, uh, have websites. I remember we, you guys were doing promo stuff for we, for Henhouse, like, yeah. and it was very like I remember the road with the lightning. We did and, we did all of that stuff. Nobody was doing that stuff. No, we were I, we were so ahead of the curve. 
I came to them with those kinds of things, like this is what we need to do because this is where things are going. We sat them down and said, look, you know, in, in 10 years, this was in, no, we said in five years, this was in 1995, you'll be selling music directly to your fans. And they were like, nah, come on. No, no, this is how fast it's going to happen. Well, that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to talk a little bit about the hip club. Like, I wanted to talk about that, that whole idea and, you know, the genesis of that and, and what, what you ultimately did Well, Well, I, I saw that, that as there was attrition in the band, you know, like, you know, you have your peak moments and then it's, it's like, how do you maintain a certain level? And to me, it was like, well, we need to make sure we can stay in touch with the fans because at some point radio may not be as supportive mm-hmm. and at, and they were our conduit to the fans. So we built the mailing list and we were, we built the mailing list. We started building the mailing list in on, on day for night. Oh, wow. You know, we started, we had an email list we were starting in day for night because we used to do it via mail mail. And then we started building the, ma- the email list on day for night. Yeah, um, I remember Tales from the Hip. I, I think I subscribed to that for a while. Right. And so we started to do all of that stuff. And, and my, um, my now ex-wife, but my, my wife at the time, she... Um, she worked for this company in New York um, that had created a loyalty program for Nature Made Pharmavite, which was a big vitamin company. And um, they were like a web development firm that she worked for. And they had developed this program where they could um, uh, uh, generate unique codes for every item. So every bottle had a different um, code on it. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could have a unique code for every fan? Oh, wow. Okay. So why don't we start the hip club? And I went to the label with it, and I said, here's my idea. We're going to put what looks like credit cards in every record, and each one of those cards is going to have its own unique number on it. And we'll get this company because they had a program to generate those codes. And all they had to do was get the codes to the people that make the cards. You guys find the people to make the cards. So the marketing team went and found someone to do the cards. No different than loyalty programs, Aeroplan, any of those programs. Because I see, like, we needed to get those fans. We needed to be able to communicate directly with them so we wouldn't lose them. Mm-hmm. So we knew who they were. And the idea was, let's put the card in each record. And if you buy the record, you join for free. Amazing. Right? Great idea. Pretty good deal. Right. So we had these technology guys helping us build the, the sites. We had two websites. One was the regular hip.com and one was protected, which was behind the door, which was you needed your, your card to get in and merch was 10% cheaper and you got special offers, you know, first in line for tickets. And we, cause part of that, if you're going to build those loyalty programs, you have to offer value. So the, 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 the 
the, the creed was over-service the hardcores. You know, turn them into completists where they have to own everything. Make them want to be a part of everything and offer them anything you can offer them. Sound check parties, like whatever you can do to, you know, solidify that relationship with the fan. And that, that's what the hip club was all about. And that's, that's what we did. There are people that are selling hip club cards on eBay at this point. Well, I have like one. It's, it's still. It's still <laughs> I have like one. Have it's in my drawer. It's in my drawer in my office. I have no, no. I just have one. You no, know. Okay. I think I'm gonna hold you my know? mic for this one. <laughs> I have one. I have a lot of stuff that would probably sell for a, a lot on eBay, but that's in my storage locker. <laughs> I remember Buffalo. Is this what we're doing? Long time running. What are we doing? Long time. Your mother tell you things Long, long When I'm gone Who you talking to She telling you I'm the one It's a great mistake I'm wide awake Driving straight down Weather man with fingers of sky It pokes it out It pulls it in It don't know why It's the same mistake It's been a It's been a long, long time coming. It's well worth the
say give and talk you work me against my friends and you'll get left out in the car same mistake it's been a I think at that point, um, the I think that philosophically we're going in different directions. Mm-hmm. And you know, Gord had done a solo record. There was a little bit of weirdness about that, as you can imagine, right? Yeah. Um, and um, you know, Gord lived right down the street from me. We were probably closer than I was with everybody else. Part of it was just simple geography. He mm-hmm. literally lived eight houses away from me. Um, and I think that philosophically, because I saw this was where things were going, um, it was probably hard for them to admit that that's where things were going. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. you can only maintain a certain level for so long before you have to start to figure out how do we reinvent. So even the, um, the, uh, um, the uh, theatrical extravaganza tour that we did on the Inviolate Light album. Um, you know, the shows were kind of getting tired. Like, I could see Gord wasn't as excited about playing the arenas, and it mm-hmm. felt like it was not... They weren't great. They weren't amazing. They weren't, like, holy shit kind of shows. And so I thought, you know what, Let's let's scale it back a bit we'll do f- some big festival shows in the summer we'll do two nights at the amphitheater and then we'll do multiple nights in these 3500 seat theaters bring in a show that looked like an arena show mm-hmm. and be the first test for selling tickets to the hip club members mm-hmm. And we sold 80% of the tickets for the tour in two day, in a day. Oh, wow. And all to hip club members before we even ran an ad or went on sale to yeah. the general public or anything. And those people were freaking out. Like, holy shit, I got fourth row seats. And it was like that kind of thing, yeah. which is what I was trying to do. And creating this kind of circus atmosphere so that when people came to the show, they felt like they were at an event again, which is what we always were trying to do is mm-hmm. create this event around the hip you know they would never go to radio stations when they were on tour to do interviews i would insist that the radio stations brought their van down to the show and we would go to the van because i wanted that van on site i wanted 
when people came up, there were three different radio stations and news crews. It was like we were at a scene. <laughs> I, you know, I wanted that kind of crazy environment that when people showed up, like carnival circus type environment. So yeah. here was a chance. So we called it the theatrical extravaganza. And the and I said to Robbie, let's do like a circus kind of thing, because Robbie always led with the art stuff. And he went, great idea. And we had like the two purple hippos dancing and it was looked like a circus tent and in every market i hired stilt walkers to walk through the crowd and and you know like so when you came into the venue there were stilt walkers walking around and clowns and shit it was like (laughs) let's create (laughs) this environment but also what i also noticed is the press were getting and the press still mattered then right but the press were getting kind of tired with the band it was like you could just feel it right well all of a sudden now they were putting on these spectacular shows i had convinced gord gord always had a lot to do with picking the opening acts and sam roberts was starting to bubble up and i knew about it and i thought this guy we we got we should get him to open for the hip it'll Mm -hmm. be really good for him and it'd be good for us like this young new cool guy and it was like the right kind of band oh yeah and I said to Gord, I really want to have this guy, Sam Roberts, open the show. And Gord, Gord was like, eh, eh, you know, it was back and forth because he didn't really know him. And I said, no, no, you cannot just trust me on this. you got to trust me because th- this is one, you, you, I know what you like. And I'm telling you, you will thank me for this. <laughs> and he went, okay, because I, I would not let go. I would not let up on it. <laughs> and after the first show in Victoria, we're standing side stage and he looks at me, he goes, Good call, you know, <laughs> right? Because he and he ended up. They became like best buddy. He loved Sam Roberts. He loved. So it was a great opening act, and now the press was reinvigorated because now they were seeing the hip up close and personal. Mm-hmm. Even though it was thirty five hundred seat theaters, but multiple nights, the set changed every night. We had this amazing light show that we brought in that could have been in an arena, and. All of a sudden, we were getting these five-star reviews again, and it was reinvigorating the fans and the media mm-hmm. and everything else, which was the purpose of it, yeah. is that we, I felt we had to take a step back to take steps forward. And I think some of the guys in the band may have thought that I was kind of trying to make them smaller, and this was all about repositioning to take the next step forward. Right. And that's where philosophically, I think, it, it changed. But you maintained your relationship with, like you were talking earlier about, you know, you were talking to Johnny the other day. You it, maintained relationships. Initially, with- I would say no. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, over time, be- yeah. Over time, definitely, um, yeah. And did, yeah. The, did the... I mean, it was 18 years. Yeah. yeah that's a, right? That's and then show. I continued to manage Gord for his next solo record as well. So... Mm-hmm. Um, so there was, uh, and that, you know, that became a little weird. And then I'm all of a sudden I'm on television and I'm like, you know, at one point I remember Gord calling me, he goes, you're more fucking famous than me. And I'm like, <laughs> he goes, my kids want to go see the show, you know? So his wife and kids were coming to the shows to see the tapings of Canadian Idol and stuff. It was, it was funny. It was funny. Those were funny moments, you know? Yeah. But, uh, Yeah. So it, I, I would say that, yeah, I mean, when it went down, it was pretty tough. It's like, you know, um, but 
you know, it's like everything else. Time heals, and and um, uh, you know, when they did their last tour, I went to six of the shows, and I spent some quality time with them all, and uh, you know, I needed to be there. Yeah, yeah that's where I was going to go next. Was you know that last tour? What I mean. What was that like for somebody who had the kind of relationship? Well, that you, you have had? to understand, I hadn't seen them in like 13 years. I hadn't seen oh, them play wow. live since February of 2003. Oh, jeez. And I hadn't seen any shows. Seen some Gord shows, but not the band. Yeah. And uh, that I went to the first, the second and third shows of the tour were in Vancouver. The first show was Victoria, then they did Two Nights of Vancouver, and I went to those shows. I didn't want to only see them here so i flew out to vancouver to because again they weren't surrounded by the world you mm -hmm. know once they came to ontario it was like the world comes out right but yeah. there it was a little easier to kind of hang and get quality time so right. um you know gord was you know obviously already diagnosed and he was sick and so we we got some quality time and i got time with all of them and we spent some some good good times together and kind of after that, we kind of um, rejuvenated the oh, relationship. That's, really that's great. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, they invited me to the premiere of the film, and I was spent time with them that night. Uh, Gord wasn't at it because he was, he was pretty sick at that point. I remember I saw that Tiff. Yeah. Yeah. And at the was, premiere. Yeah. And it was uh, sort of like... Um, Oh no, you know, like Gord's not here. Is this, you know, like what does this? Well, actually, Robbie said to me that night, "Have you talked to Gord?" I said, well, "I've been trying to get to see him," um, and and I've been communicating with his brother. And Robbie goes, "Go see him as soon as you can. If you're going to see him, now's the time." And that was September. That's September, yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, it was pretty tough. I mean, that. Last show in Kingston, um, I was there, and I don't mind saying this now, but um, all the shows I had been to, I went and I had a big smile on my face through every show. Like, I was, like, watching them as a fan. I took a different friend to each show. Oh, that's great. So everyone could experience it with me. You know, coming backstage and like, so I, in Vancouver, I took two different friends that I knew there. I went to Hamilton and two of the Toronto shows. I took three different people to those shows. And then Kingston, I took another friend. Um, and, and, um, but, and it was a beautiful day, the day of the show in Kingston. It was a gorgeous, sunny day. And I woke up Sunday morning in my bed and breakfast. I had a bed and breakfast room in Kingston, and it was pouring fucking rain. And I looked out the window, and it just all came over me, and I just broke down because it was like, holy shit, like, it, it's really over. But it didn't really hit me until that morning where I went, okay, this is it. Like, yes. looking out the window, pouring rain, it was, like, really depressing. Yeah. And it was like, that was the moment. So I had a good cry for about 20 minutes and got my shit together yeah. and had breakfast and drove home. <laughs> yeah. I so we're all in kind of that feeling of not really knowing that this was it or like in the moment following the tour, watching things on television and, you know, in the big 
Well, you didn't go to Kingston. No. no, no. Did you go to the Toronto shows? I went to one of the Toronto shows, yeah. I couldn't get tickets. Which one did you go to? I went to the middle one. The one that was going to be the last one, and then they added the third one. Well, I always knew there was going to be three. I went to the first and the third. Oh, okay. My wife, yeah. went, to, my wife went to the third one. But I remember at the third one, I was standing on the side of the stage near the end when they were doing Grace 2, and Gord saw me from the side of the stage, and he starts singing lines from Grace 2. Like, literally... I'm standing on the ground and the stage is up here and he's on the stage as if he's looking to the crowd, but he's looking right at me and he's singing the words to the song right at me. Oh, how powerful is that? Yeah. You've had an incredible journey through history with this band and... Um, I guess. Yes. Oh, fuck yeah, off. I'm Come sorry. on. <laughs> Sorry you got fired from that stereo shop. That's a bummer. Yeah. Oh, this is great. I have a great story because the guy who fired me, um, he still was kind of in the business at some point. And I think I, um, I was talking to my brother because my brother used to work for him at some point too. And I said, I need a new turntable. My brother goes, oh, you should call so-and-so. I said, oh, why? He goes, because, you know, he's selling stuff like that still. He's still. So I said, okay. So I called him up and... Uh, and at that point, he knew what had happened and yeah. where I, you know, and I said, and I was, you know, it was when I was still managing the band. And I said, uh, I said, yeah, I need to pay. I, f- I think it was this turntable. I forget what it was. And, and, um, oh, I know it was a printer. It was a printer. He was in that business, uh, HPs and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. So he says, yeah, you have to come up to the office. So I want to see you. And I'm like, okay. It was one of those. I was like, oh, Okay. <laughs> So I go up to his office and we sit down and I say, you know, I never thanked you. And he's, (laughs) and he said, he said, why? And I told him the story. And I said, when you fired me, I said to myself, I'll never work for someone else another day in my life. And that's because of you. (laughs) And he took that as a badge of honor. He was so happy. So we're in the lunchroom because he was a crazy guy. We're in the lunchroom. And he says, let's go have lunch. We'll have lunch in the lunchroom. He had like 200 employees and he had this big company. And uh, he stands on one of the tables and he said, do you know who this guy is? I fired him in 1980. <laughs> he starts telling the story to all his staff. So you can see there is life after me. Like he's telling this story. So if I fire you, you know, it's like. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> he turned it into like a big thing, right? It was pretty funny. Okay, can I have my printer? I need to go. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for your time. Yes. And uh, this has been great. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. Keep doing what you're doing. Fully and Completely is a modern superior podcast, proudly sponsored by Long Slice Brewery. To rate, review, or subscribe to the show, visit Spotify. Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, or anywhere else you get podcasts. For more information about the show, our guests, or Jamie and Greg, please visit www.fullyincompletely.ca. To join our Facebook group, visit Facebook and search for Fully Incompletely. Completely.